Today's reading is from Governance and Ministry by Dan Hotchkiss. This is the second edition, and, and uh, every meeting I've gone to, people say you have to read this if you're going to be in governance and ministry. And this is from page one. Religion changes people. No one touches holy ground and stays the same. Religious leaders stir the pot by pointing to the contrast between life as it is and life as it should be and urges us to close the gap. Religious insights provide the handhold that people need to criticize injustice, rise above self-interest, and take risks to achieve healing in a wounded world. Religion, at its best, is no friend to the status quo. Organization, on the other hand, conserves. Institutions capture, schematize, codify persistent patterns of activity. People sometimes say institutions are conservative and smile as if they had said something clever. But conservation is what institutions do. Well-ordered congregations lay down schedules, put policies on paper, place people in positions, and generally bring order out of chaos. Organizations can be flexible, creative, and iconoclastic, but only resisting some of their most basic instincts. No wonder organized religion is so difficult. Congregations create sanctuaries where people can nurture and inspire each other with results no one can predict. The stability of a religious institution is a necessary precondition to the instability religious transformation brings. The need to balance both sides of the paradox, the transforming of the transforming power of religion and the stabilizing power of organization makes leading congregations a unique challenge. I thought his insight as to the paradox or the contradiction between what religion does and what organization does is a very insightful way to start a book. Um, I'm glad to see that we have some visitors today. And um, I am obviously not the minister of this church. For those of you who are visitors, we have a, a minister, a part-time minister. And during the summer, uh, summer uh, meetings, we have individuals who volunteer to say something. And just so you know, I'm just a guy who had some thoughts on his mind and uh, volunteered to, uh, to tell them to you. Uh, ostensibly, the summer series is about our principles. And this morning, I'm very generally talking about the third principle, which is acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. Can everybody hear me, by the way? I'm trying to speak in my big voice. That's good. I'm going to make two broad statements. Like making assumptions, generalizations can be dangerous. The first generalization is that family is important. Family is the place where your basic needs for shelter, food, and safety are met, where you are loved unconditionally, where you grow up and learn values, where you can succeed, and at times screw up. Here is a quote I found on the importance of family. Unfortunately, I cannot attribute it because I found it in so many places in similar forms. Family is your blood. They are the people who accept you for who you are and who you would do any who would do anything to see you smile and who love you no matter what. Family is the one and only place where your life begins and love never ends. You may have lots of people who come and go in your life, but no one will care for you or love you like your parents. 
Now, some may disagree with such a broad statement. Some may be muttering to themselves, you should have been part of my family. Or how about families are abused and neglect their children? Or you want crazy? You should see my family. I think those objections, however, prove my point because we see the abusive, the criminal, or the just plain crazy as outside the norm. My second statement is that religion is important. I use the word religion in its broadest sense, not just to designate organized religions like UU or Catholicism or Judaism or Buddhism, but in the sense of faith, a belief in the divine or the mysterious. Are we not better people when we believe in something bigger than ourselves, when we adopt and practice principles, ethics, and moral standards that only religions teach us? I think family and religion often go hand in hand. After all, why do we have so many uh, RE programs and religious schools, Catholic school, madrasas, yeshivas, all seek to teach our children religious values? So what happens, though, when religion and family are in conflict with each other? What happens to family when religion teaches that you cannot be part of the family unless you conform to its religious practices? Today, I want to talk to you more about that in general and my family in particular. As I was writing this, I thought it might have been better to be uh, talking with Irv or Robin on their uh, couches instead of talking to a general assembly of people. But I'm going to talk with all of you. The seminal event that shaped my spiritual and religious outlook occurred on July 3rd, 1948, roughly 10 months before my birth. On that day, Margaret Musco, an Italian Roman Catholic from Brooklyn, New York, married David Benkowski, the firstborn American son of Polish conservative Jewish parents. Normally, the marriage of two people who loved each other as much as my parents did would be a time for celebration. However, for my father's parents, the marriage violated their fundamental religious beliefs that he should marry within his faith. They disowned him, even though my mother offered to convert. He was dead to them. They sat Shiva. Over the years, my father's expulsion from the family was used to influence and manipulate several generations into marrying within the faith. My father did remain close to his younger brother, Jerry, and we visited them and his wife and son from time to time. Jerry's son, my cousin, Billy, who I'll talk about more later, would tell me stories about how our grandparents would warn their children and grandchildren to marry within the faith unless they wanted to share the same fate as David. There's a very large family on my father's, father's side uh, with many uncles, aunts, and cousins, and with the exception of my father's brother, um, I have not seen any of them until very, very recently. There's a photo of me when I was about two years old sitting on my paternal grandfather's lap. The story goes that he softened and told my parents that he would accept my mother into the family if she converted. By that time, after two years, feelings had hardened and my parents said no. I was raised Catholic, but it held no meaning for me. What did hold meaning was that organized religion could be bad, dividing families as well as nations. When my father died in 2008, 
uh, his brother Jerry and his wife attended his funeral. I spoke about at the service about the need for forgiveness and reconciliation. My aunt was moved by my words and asked me to write down what I said. And she brought that to my cousin Ira, who is a rabbi in New Jersey. We spoke a couple of times by phone and talked of a meeting. But two things happened which made me uh, realize reconciliation was impossible. First, he said that only the person making the judgment, that is our grandfather, could forgive. That was impossible since he had died in the late 1950s. Second, he said, we did not know. That too, I knew not to be true. My father had attended his parents' funerals and sat shiva. He was, as I said earlier, a dire warning to, uh, to the younger generation not to marry outside the faith. So I gave up on the idea of reconciliation, yet not reconciled with myself, uh, with the outcome. Whenever I do a sermon, I end up doing some reading and research on questions which come to mind. In this case, I wondered if all religions discourage or ban its adherents from marrying outside the faith. What I found was that the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, do not approve of interfaith marriage. Christians cite 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, Corinthians are the letters from the Apostle Paul. The King James Version of the New Testament reads as follows. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? The New American Standard Version, a little easier to understand. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship hath light, has light with darkness? While there does not appear to be any sanctions associated with interfaith marriage or marriage between a non-Christian and a Christian, the unequally yoked language strongly discourages such marriage. The Jews cite the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the, Lord's, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. <clears throat> Islam, too, prohibits interfa interfaith marriage. Uh, the Quran states, do not marry idolatresses till they believe. And certainly a believing maid is better than an idolatress, even though she would please you. And do not marry idolaters till they believe. And certainly a believing slave is better than idolater even though he would please you. These invite to the fire, and Allah invites to the garden and to forgiveness by his grace, and makes clear his revelations to mankind so they may remember. Now, Islam, is, in my reading, I found is a bit more subtle. Some scholars say that the Quran allows Muslim men to marry people of the book, that is, Christians and Jews, but women may not. We all know interfaith couples, so these biblical prohibitions have not stopped interfaith marriage. What I would posit, though, is that the most pious seem to be the least tolerant. What of the Eastern faiths? Buddhists, Hindus, and Baha'i are the polar opposite 
of the Abrahamic religions. I'm quoting from What Buddhists Believe by K. Sri Dhanmananda. In Buddhism, marriage is regarded as entirely a personal concern. Buddhism allows individual the freedom to decide for himself issues pertaining to marriage. And then further, when a religion demands that both partners must have the same religious label, it denies the basic human right of an individual to believe what he or she wants. Finally, no self-respecting human being who really understands what he believes according to his own conviction should give up his beliefs merely to satisfy the man-made demands of another religion. That I identified with. Why such a disparity of the major religions? Of the major religion, religions, only Judaism and Islam have a descent system. That is, Judaism passes through the mother and Islam passes through the father. While one can convert to Judaism or Islam through study and religious adherence, one is Jewish only if born to a Jewish mother. In other major religions, there is no descent system. So, for instance, uh, a child becomes Catholic through baptism. Now, I understand that when my father married my non-Jewish mother, his family saw that he could not have Jewish children. Still, I contend that his exile was an inappropriate response. <clears throat> so now I want to get back to the story of redemption and reconciliation, because it didn't end in 2008. As most of you know, my daughter married a secular Israeli in 2002, but slowly became an ultra-conservative Hasidic Jew. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's a large family on my father's side, some of whom live in Israel. One of them is my cousin, Evie, who I think is a year or two younger than me. When I made my annual trek to, to visit my, uh, I'm sorry, when I visited her, I, I'm sorry, in 2011, I met her very, very briefly at my daughter's home. When I made my annual trek this past March, my daughter told me that Evie wanted to meet again. I thought, well, maybe this is the opening that I sought in 2008. I was apprehensive, though, because I felt that Evie spoke for the rest of the family. To understand why I was apprehensive, I have to tell you another story. My cousin Billy who I mentioned earlier, was one of those hard luck people. He came from well-educated, thoughtful, and well-to-do parents. Billy was a deadhead, and I think drugs had taken a toll. He never held a steady job, although he had an accounting degree. The highlights of his working career seemed to be his cab driving in the San Francisco area. He never had a meaningful relationship until about six or seven years ago. He met a woman online who lived in Florida. Things progressed, and they decided to get married. However, she was Christian. Before the wedding, Evie wrote to Billy and said, among other things, condemning the upcoming nuptials, you are accomplishing what Hitler could not. Sadly, Billy's wife, who was not a well woman, died less than a year after they were married. So now you can see why I was apprehensive about my upcoming meeting with Evie. We met in a cafe in a mall in Jerusalem. 
After some small talk, we discussed family history, the story of my father's exile from the family and the aborted attempt to accept him and my mother. It immediately became clear that she had no sympathy for my father. She said in similar circumstances, she would do the same if her children married outside the faith. We talked about priorities, the priority of family over religion. But for her, religion was the primary thing. Marrying outside the faith is an existential threat to all Jews. When I pointed out that we are related, that we shared blood and DNA, and that we had the same grandparents, her reply was, I seem like a nice guy, but she did not consider us related. In her, in her world, there are Jewish people and everyone else. To say that I left that meeting a bit discombobulated was, would be an understatement. So here I am at 67 years of age, still mucking around in this religious religion and family issue, which I have tried unsuccessfully to fix. Don't get me wrong, I'm not an orphan. I always thought about this situation as to how it affects me. My father was the one who was exiled. Remarkably, he never seemed bitter. He was, he, as a dad, he was amazing. He coached our little league teams and always provided opportunities for my brother and I, our brother and me to uh, improve ourselves. When we screwed up and there were doozies, I never felt he would be anything but forgiving. <clears throat> there was my mother's side of the family, the Brooklyn Italians. And those are the people who I grew up with and with whom I identified. I had a rather normal leave it to be for upbringing. So where was all this going? As I was writing and research, researching, I made a connection. My connection came from training I received when I worked as a teacher assistant. It was called MANT, M-A-N-D-T, training. The MANT system is, and I quote, a comprehensive integrated approach to preventing, de-escalating, and if necessary, intervening when behavior of an individual poses a threat of harm to themselves and to others. It was very heavy on the theories of Abraham Maslow, an American psychologist. Maslow wanted to understand what motivates people. He stated that people are motivated to achieve certain needs. When one need is fulfilled, the person seeks to fulfill the next higher level and so on. He created a hierarchy of needs shaped in a pyramid. Maslow's hierarchy of needs states that we must satisfy each in turn, starting with the first or the base of the pyramid, which deals with basic needs for survival. Only when the lower order of needs uh, of physical and emotional well-being are satisfied are we concerned with higher order of needs of personal development. Conversely, he said that if things that satisfy our lower order of needs are swept away, we no longer are no longer concerned about the maintenance of our higher order of needs. The original hierarchy had five needs. The first two were basic survival needs, food, water, shelter, safety, and freedom from fear. So in school, you know, the theory is that if a kid comes to school hungry or without proper clothing, he's not going to be motivated to another higher level to learn. So that basically how, how that integrated with the man training. 
The third level, and the one which was most interesting to me, is the belongingness needs, family, love, and friendship. Maslow recognized that family and love from family and a sense of belonging are necessary before one can achieve the next higher order of needs. Humans, he said, need to love and be loved by others. Many people become susceptible to loneliness, social anxiety, and clinical depression in the absence of this love or belonging element. Do we not see a common element among all the people who have committed mass murder? They are all described as loners. The fourth level, once you have that need for love and family satisfied, is self-esteem needs, achievement, independence, and self-respect. And the fifth level is the level of self-actualization, realizing uh, personal potential, self-fulfillment, seeking personal growth, and peak experiences. Later, other, he added other levels, cognitive needs such as knowledge and meaning, aesthetic needs, appreciation and the search for beauty, balance, form, and transcendence, helping others to achieve self-actualization. So this connection came about that I began to see the importance of family in one's life. I became a UU in the early 1980s because it affirmed the ideals that I had grown up with. It was also a place I could safely take my children where they would learn about religious ideas in a safe environment. Like most of us, I try to come up with my elevator speech. It was and still is rather wishy-washy. But the journey through this sermon with its story of family, rejection, because of religion, attempts at redemption and forgiveness led me to a new elevator speech. And here it is. We do not offer you everlasting life in the hereafter for your beliefs or for your actions in this life. In fact, I don't even know if there's a life after this one. What we, as UUs, offer is this. UUCL is the best family you will never be born into. We offer family, friendship, intimacy, and safety. We offer you love and belonging. Because we embrace diverse people and diverse ideas, we offer you a place where you can explore the limits of your beliefs. Unitarian Universalism will not make you a better person. But, you, but here at UUCL, we will offer you a place where you can become a better person. But that is not an end in itself. By becoming a part of this loving community, you can seek higher levels of achievement, self-respect, self-esteem, and self-fulfillment. We are family. You are my family. Amen.